Gone. Ah, thank you. Welcome back. Just want to mention a few quick things. <laughs> I can't even turn a microphone on. This is sad. Okay, so doesn't bother me. Um, we have a couple of announcements. First of all, Wednesday nights, our kids' club is going on. Real life is happening for our teenagers on Wednesday night. Um, if you want more information, you can call. We can give you all the information you need. We also have a newsletter that goes out approximately once a week just to keep up to date on what's going on. Uh, like if we have a big snow and we need to cancel, that never happens. Um, you can sign up for the newsletter on our website. It's just a way of staying a little bit connected and knowing what's happening. And then if at some point you think I want to get involved with something, I want to do it, you can, you can get involved. Uh, it gives you opportunities for that too. And then also we are in the beginning, middle-ish beginning of our CareNet campaign for money for uh, CareNet Ministries that helps with uh, newborns and mothers and uh, dealing with the issues that they face so many times when they're pregnant and not sure what to do. If you'd like to participate in that, you can come up afterwards and grab one of these baby bottles. We encourage you. Uh, you can steal change from your husband, from your wife. Uh, students, you can steal from your dorm mates. It's fine. It's for a good cause, so it's really okay. So we'd like, you can put change in there. You can stick a check in there. You can stick cash in there. It doesn't matter, but uh, this will all go there and help that ministry. And uh, you can, and then you can tell people, I, I go to a really unusual church. Our pastor encourages us to steal. So, um that's just something different. Most churches don't brag about. All right. We are in, I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm just excited. Everybody's here. I'm, in, I'm loving studying the book of John. We're having a great, I'm having a great time in there. You may not be, but I am. Today we're going to talk about it. it, it I'm titled it, The Lord of the Festival. And um, as we look at this passage, we're going to see a passage that in one sense is very familiar to people. The wedding at Cana turning the water into wine, people know. But it also has some things that are troubling or we struggle with. And I love passages like that because then we get to dig in and see what's going on and try to understand what's going on. So let me read the passage to you. It's verses 1 through 11 of John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, "'They have no more wine.'" Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding about from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the, water, the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best wine till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So, we're looking at a story of a wedding. Now, that's a pretty familiar thing for us. Almost everyone, I can imagine, has been to one or at least knows something about them, been involved in one way or another. It's a huge event in the lives of two families. But in those days, it wasn't just a huge event in the lives of two families. It would be a huge event in the life of the village. It would be oftentimes a huge event in the lives of everyone in that region. It was a much bigger deal than we have today, although we can make them pretty big deals, but even so, it's not the same. It would be more like a festival 
There would be food and drink and there'd be dancing and there'd be entertainment. There would be events. It would last five to seven days. It would be a huge thing that everyone would come to and be involved in. Now, this leads us to a problem as we interpret the Bible. We tend to think of things through our lens of understanding. So when it says wedding, we think of a wedding. I think of my wedding. You know, you think of a wedding you've been to. And that's the problem because then we color it that way. We kind of slant it that way and we can miss some of what's going on. That's why history and culture is so key to interpreting the Bible, understanding the history of the time, understanding the culture of the time. This is the stuff that I love. I love looking this stuff up and learning. And so the key here is to try to understand why people did things the way they did and then understand what those things meant to those people at that time. This is so key for understanding, rather than understanding them what they mean to us at this time. Now, there is meaning for us in this time. That's what makes the Bible a, a book that transcends all times and all cultures. But as we interpret something like a wedding, we have to understand what a wedding was like in that day, in that age, what they expected, how they looked at it, and, and what they saw. And so things like and I know I say this, grammar is key to understanding. Idioms, sayings, puns, those are really key to understanding what's going on in the Bible. Now, I, I, I've come to this face-to-face -face a number of times. But I, have a, I have a close friend. Um, his name is Harold Andrew. He is, he is from Afghanistan. He was in the Mujahideen. He, when the Russians invaded Afghanistan, he fought the Russians and was involved in that in his, in his younger years. And, and then through incredible circumstance after incredible circumstance after incredible circumstance, he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. And so then he moved out of Afghanistan for fear of his life, moved to India. Then after about eight years or so, he was tracked down by Muslims and, and he had to move out of India for fear of his life and moved to the United States. He's moved around a few times in the United States out of for fear of his life. But he came to the United States and he had to interpret, he was interpreting things through his Afghani Muslim lens that he had grown up with. And so one time we went on a missions trip to Arizona together and we were riding in, in a van uh, with, with some teenagers and, and he was saying to me, and I, I, I don't want to mock him, but it, you know, Harold has that, he has such a distinctive uh, voice and way of speaking. And he said, oh, Bob, I, I understand when someone says, holy smoke, I know what that means now. It means, oh my goodness, or oh wow. And I said, yes, Harold, that's, that, Harold, that's great. He goes, but what is this holy cow? I have seen holy cows in India at the temples. Why do some of your teenagers say, holy cow, where is it? And I was like, no, no, holy cow is a lot like holy smoke. It's like, oh wow, oh my goodness, it's an exclamation. Oh, no one told me, you know? And so what happened? He's interpreting the world through the lens that he has. And so it creates mistakes. Just that's the way it is. So we'll bump into these ideas today. And it shouldn't surprise us because we will see an, an event that is very commonplace, very normal in that day and in that society. It's a wedding. And, you know, I, 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 just to relate it some to how we, I, I've done a lot of weddings and um, oftentimes I'll ask people, sometimes even years later, I say, what do you remember about that wedding? It's always interesting to me to, to hear what people remember about a wedding. And usually it's two things. Usually it's the bride coming down the aisle. That's an incredible 
event and full of emotion and beauty and love. And the other thing is, what a good time they had. What a good time they had at the wedding and at the, at the reception. Whatever, whatever went on, it was just, it was very good. And it hit me what people don't remember at weddings. I never had one person say to me, oh, the flowers, I remember the flowers. It's been 10 years and I still, no, they don't remember flowers. Now, I'm not saying don't get flowers if you're going to get married. That's not my point. I would say this, don't go crazy because no one's going to remember, right? They only remember things that, they remember basically how much fun they had. If they ever remembered, I noticed when people sometimes remembered something bad, like one guy said one time, the food was terrible at that wedding. The food was terrible. They remembered the bad, but it had to be really bad. So they tended to remember the good, and mostly what they remembered was how the joy and the fun and the celebration and the love, that type of a thing. So here we have this wedding that's going on here. It's a joyful event. It's a feast. It's a festival. And we're going to see that Jesus is the Lord of the festival. He's the Lord of the feast. He's the Lord of joy. Because we're built for joy. And I want to emphasize that. We are built for joy. Not just happiness, not just pleasure, but for joy. Something that is deeper. Something that is stronger. Something that when you get a taste, you, all, you always want it. And you want more. Because the joy that Jesus gives is a joy that's beyond compare. C.S. Lewis is interesting in his, in his book, Surprised by Joy. Uh, C.S. Lewis, was for, for num- many years, he was an atheist. He became a Christian, and he was saying it wasn't the ontological argument. It wasn't the cosmological argument. It wasn't those. It was joy. He said, I began to see Jesus was the one who brought joy, and I had no joy in my life, and I was made for it. And he said, that started my path to becoming a Christian because the human soul was built for something greater than achievement and applause. So there's three main conversations in this passage. There's a conversation between Jesus and Mary. There's a conversation between Jesus and the servants. And there's a conversation between the man who's called the master of the feast and the groom. So let's look at the first one. The first one is the conversation between Jesus and Mary. That's verses 1 through 5. I'm just going to read them again real quick. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had been invited to that wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So we have this wedding. It's, called, it's at Cana. Now here's a little map. I don't know if you can quite see it very well, but kind of in the middle, just over halfway down, we see Cana and we see Nazareth. They're very close together. Not, not just a few hours walk. It's just over two ridges and there it is. And so you can see the reach of the wedding. Here's Cana, two hours away is Nazareth, and people from Nazareth are coming. Nazareth are coming to that wedding. It's a regional, it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing that's going on here. And so when we see this passage, we see first of all that Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's there, and she probably has some sort of authority. She's related in some way to one of the families. There's something because she's the one trying to figure out what to do about the lack of wine. And, uh, and Jesus and his disciples are invited. Jesus is invited because of Mary, his disciples are because of Jesus. And so it was a big event if even Jesus' disciples are invited to come to it. But this would be normal. 
their huge affairs in an area that was fairly impoverished. Once or twice a year, you had a wedding and everything stopped for seven days. Everybody poured into this and they celebrated. It was the biggest event of the year. It was this, you know, whatever is a big event to you. It was the state fair. It was, you know, whatever it might be for you, it was the biggest event of the year for that area. The whole town would be invited, and many from out of town, we see that here. They would take the week, they would feast, they would have, there would be entertainment, people would sing, people would talk, just all kinds of things going on. The family of the groom would be responsible for the, for the food and the drink. But one of the things we have to understand, and this is very cultural, what does this mean to this couple? What does it mean? It means they have this wedding, everybody's pleased, and they are integrated into the community as a married couple. You know, people didn't move away. And so you were integrated into the community for the rest of your life. So this is a huge event. It would be remembered for years to come. It's much larger. The average American wedding is like between 100 and 200 people. Jewish celebration would be much, much larger, very elaborate in its symbolism. In a village like Cana, it would be a community celebration running out of wine before the end of the wedding festivities amounted to, and like one author was saying, it's a social catastrophe. Another one said it's a dreadful embarrassment to the couple. The groom, whose responsibility it is to supply it, uh, would be devastated. In a culture that is a very shame-oriented culture, this would be a huge shame. It would devastate his reputation. They're on the cusp of a promise. He's on the cusp of a promise to provide for his bride for the rest of his life. And it would be utterly shameful for it to be revealed that he couldn't provide for the wedding. It'd be a faux pas that would be marked for years. <clears throat> Small towns remember. Excuse me. Small towns remember. They'd get a reputation maybe as a stingy couple or poor planners or something like that. It would live long in the, in the minds of the attendees because it would be something that, that, that they would make fun of for years. People like, would be like, that's worse than the disaster of Wilbur and Dolores back in 03. You know, it would be one of those type things where everybody would remember. And you have to understand, along with that, in the, the Jewish mindset is very much that wine is the joy of the feast. That's how they thought. That's what they believed. In fact, there's a rabbinic saying that we found in the days of Jesus that said, where there is no wine, there is no joy. So this is a, it's just a huge thing. This is a huge thing. And that's what they thought. So the idea would be there's going to be no joy at this feast, and it would be a disappointment for years to come. And so Mary acts. And this is an example, what she says is an example of, of one of those statements that carry far greater meaning than the words seem to indicate. You know, Mary's not simply giving Jesus information when she says, basically, don't bother going to the kitchen because they have no wine, right? She's not educating Jesus. This, this statement has an implicit ask for something to be done. Now, if you're in any kind of relationship or a husband and wife relationship, you know these things happen all the time. Not that it's happened in mine. These are purely hypothetical. Wow, honey, the grass seems to be growing faster than usual. Look how high it's gotten. 
right? There is a definite ask for the grass to be cut in that. Honey, I know it's midnight, but we're out of milk. That's not a statement. That's not an education. That's an ask. It's amazing how fast things can pile up in a laundry basket. These are, again, purely hypothetical. Bob, are you going to go out in public wearing that? Okay, that's not a statement to educate. That's something saying, change this, do this, right? So when Mary says they have no more wine, it's not like Jesus going, oh, I didn't know that. Thanks for the information. I'll try to keep track of it. You know, no, Mary's expecting something. So the question we have as we read this, as we look into this, is what is she expecting? And we don't really know for sure. Because, because John tells us in, in verse 11, this is the first miracle. He hasn't done a miracle yet. And so we don't know exactly, except we just know this. Mary's thought is, if anyone can help, my son can help. Because I know he's special. You know, she, she, she has this, this treasury of amazing statements and amazing memories at this point in time. You know, remember, it was through an angel and not a pregnancy test that she found out she was pregnant. It was amazing. She remembers what the angels spoke. She remembers what the shepherds said to her about Jesus. She remembers what, 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 uh, what uh, Simeon said over Jesus. This is, this brings uh, salvation to all the nations. I can die now. I've seen the Lord's anointed. That's a pretty powerful statement over a baby. She remembers that. She knows how he was called the Lord's Christ in Luke 2. All these things about Jesus, she remembered and she treasured. No doubt she'd been told what John the Baptist had said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And maybe she was there when it happened. And then when, when John said, you know, the, the Lamb of God and his followers started to follow him, she says, all of a sudden now, her baby boy has disciples and they call him rabbi. So she knows things are changing and he is incredibly special, like no other child ever born. So this all points to the fact that she thought Jesus could do something, but she really wasn't sure. And then we get his response. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but anybody here kind of notice how that response, does that kind of bug you? Woman? Kind of condescending? Kind of demeaning? Woman, why do you involve me? One, one person says, why, do you, why are you bothering me? And I read that, and I'm like, Jesus, come on, chill, dude. It's your mom. Crying out loud, so disrespectful. Okay, now, what am I doing? I'm interpreting it through 21st century language. If you think that isn't weird, try it, right? Go to Chipotle, and, and they say, what would you like? Woman, I would like, and just see how fast your order just kind of... And things fall in that aren't supposed to fall in, and you just worry. Why? Because we don't do that. That's disrespectful. Okay, let me just say, it wasn't in Jesus' day. We have to get past our mindset of this is disrespectful to a mindset of understanding in those days, we, we can't, our modern-day sensibilities are not what we use in interpreting. This easily could have been inter in, um, translated honored lady. Or like the old English, milady. It wasn't a put down, right? It's, it, we see it used in Scripture. We see it used in other writings all the time, and it's not meant, generally speaking, to be a put down. 
it, it, it's just not what we used to say. So we have to get past it. We have to understand that. Jesus isn't putting her down. Okay, but the rest of it seems kind of cryptic, right? I'm not really sure what's going on here. What is he saying? And, and, and this, this phrase, uh, um, why do you involve me, is a phrase that we see used at other times. And it can be negative, but it also seems to have, um, it's a conversational phrase that is, is, is used a lot. It seems to be saying, I'm in control. Uh, let me do what's best. You're not in control, right? So it seems to be possibly a gentle pushback. It doesn't seem like Jesus is being terribly disrespectful. It seems like a gentle pushback, but it is still somewhat cryptic. And then uh, we get a clue under what he's thinking in the second part when he says, my hour has not yet come. So now we know kind of what Jesus is thinking because he's looking ahead to, to his death on the cross. He's looking ahead to the end. And he's saying, it's not time. It's not time. And so he seems to be telling her, I'm in control. I got this under control. Your timing is wrong here. For whatever reason, it seems cryptic to us. But the interesting thing is, it seems not cryptic to Mary. Like maybe I think what's happening here is she's used to weird statements from Jesus. She's used to these cryptic statements from Jesus because she just takes it in and she says, looks at the servants, she says, don't let him bother you. Whatever he tells you to do, you make sure you do it, right? Do whatever he says. I know that sounds weird. Don't worry. Do it. That seems to be what she's trying to tell him. He's saying, it's not my time for suffering. John 12, John 17 talks about this. Jesus is seeing, and I think in a sense what's happening, I, I, and, and this is me, this is my interpretation, so this isn't, I think Jesus is going, he's looking at this, he's like, yep, here we go, and, and so it begins. So it begins. My walk to the cross starts right now. That's what's happening. He's seeing that. He's, he's feeling it. You know, I mean, I can just imagine the situation. Mary, you know, there's no why. Oh, the poor dears. This is so embarrassing. They'll never live it down. Son, can you do anything? And he's kind of like, Mom, stop pushing me. I'm not ready to die yet. He's feeling that. But she's used to it. So she says, I know it sounds strange, but just do it. Just do it. So Jesus affirms that he does what he does on his own timetable here. He says, he says this a number of times to show that he's in control. And the timing of his death is his timing. And no one else's. He shows that he's the one who's in control and in charge. So we have that conversation with Jesus and Mary. Now let's look at the conversation uh, of, of uh, Mary and the servants. Uh, we kind of dipped into that, but... Um, and, and what the servants are saying to each other. No, I'm sorry, I should have labeled this uh, Jesus and the servants. But anyways, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw them out and take it, take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. All right, so these are the types of jars. This would be something like this that you see. Is, is, and they're about 20 to 30 gallons. There's a number of them have, that have been discovered in different places in the Middle East and, and, and in Israel. So we kind of know what he's talking about. These were called purification jars. And they would hold water that people would wash their hands or wash their feet with. So they were considered unclean jars, right? Because my first thought when I read this is, why didn't Jesus just say, 
bring the empty wine jugs over and I'll make it easy for you, right? But I, I don't know, maybe we, maybe because we already know there's, there weren't enough wine jugs. It wasn't enough. So he needs more. I, I don't know for sure. But this is a peculiar choice because these are considered unclean. You would not drink from this. It was used for ceremonial cleansing. They'd pour some out or they'd dip their hands in. They'd pour it on their feet. They, they usually wouldn't dip their feet in, but they weren't considered drinkable water. This is like having a bucket of water at the door, you know? It's kind of what, what would happen. You don't drink out of that. So when he tells the servants, fill, this, fill these jars with water, they're like, okay. But they obey. And now he says, draw some out and take it to the master of feast. Now, you know, we know what happens. Imagine you were one of those servants. This is the jar you wash feet out of. Okay, draw out a sipper and take that to the master of the feast. Me? Because <laughs> he'll kill me if he knows where. The, if he says, where did this drink come from? And I tell him the stone jar that people wash their feet with. I'll be laying on my back, you know, I'll be, he'll, he'll, he'll hit me. He'll do something. I don't know what he'll do, but you, you got to be kidding. People want to drink wine. They don't want dishwashing liquid. They don't want dirty, dirty water. And Jesus says, do it. Now, wine in the Old Testament, and this, I mentioned this before, wine had this symbol of God's blessing, of God's joy, of celebration. And most importantly, especially for this context, is there's quite a few Old Testament passages where the messianic age, the coming of the Messiah, one of the heralding events is this new wine, abundant wine, great wine. Here's one of those passages. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and the herds. See, this is all a sign of blessing and joy. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. And here's the joy working out. Then the young women will dance and be glad, the young men as well, the old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. Jeremiah 31. And we see this a number of times. The sign of the Messiah, the Messianic age coming, is going to be this great joy. There's going to be abundance. There's going to be wine. There's going to be all of this, you know, all of this stuff. So when the Messiah comes, so will come the blessing of abundance and great joy. Last one here, the master of the feast and the groom. This is the third conversation. And the master of the banquet, he tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. I love how John puts that in. The servants knew, and they're all like, please don't ask me. Please don't ask me, right? Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what would happen at a wedding then is you'd bring out the best wine first and people would drink the best wine. And then when their senses are a little dulled, you bring out the crap wine, right? You bring out whatever, you know, the $5 shelf stuff that you, that you got. Well, you bring out that stuff because they won't know the difference, All right? That's what happens. That's the practice. But what happens is the wine Jesus made was the best wine. 
The master calls it the good wine, the best of the wine. And he questions the groom's plan of saving it the best for later. He goes, this is not how it's done. Now, he may be commending him. We don't get it from here. We don't know exactly how it spoke. But what he said was, this is not how it's usually done. Why did you do it this way? Now, can you imagine the groom? He just asked him a question. He has no clue what the answer is. Why did you do it this way? His first thought is, I didn't mean to do it that way. His second thought is, where did all that wine come from? And I think he probably just said, oh, I'm just trying something new. That's what I would have done, you know, just cover it up. He has no idea what's happening. All he knows is his neck is saved. Through one sign, and interestingly, it was almost a secret sign by Jesus. Only a few people knew what really happened. And Jesus didn't come out in front of the wedding and go, it was me. It was me. We were out of wine. Save the day. I'm God. He didn't do that. He just stayed in the background. Because that's not why he did it. His signs are not to get people to look at him. His signs are to be signs of a coming age. His signs would be the signs. We talked about, we studied this some when we were studying uh, uh, some of the Gospels. His signs were to point to God is now at work in this world. The sick are healed. The lame walk. The dead are raised. There is new wine. There is great joy. And so Jesus, I think it's very interesting here. Jesus took on the responsibility of the groom at this wedding by supplying the needed wine. Because Jesus knew one day he's going to be a groom at the wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of time. The church will be gathered for a giant wedding banquet. And Jesus will be the groom. And his responsibility will be to supply the feast, the food and drink. And so he steps in here. I think it's a beautiful picture that we're looking at. So we look at this passage and we see it. We can, we can kind of figure out what's going on. Now let's dig a little deeper. Let's just take a minute or two and think about application and how this can work in our lives. When Mary approaches Jesus, he sees, he sees the humiliation that's about to happen for this groom. He understands that. It's like a small, it's like a small metaphor of life. It never... Life never delivers what we want it to. And Jesus sees his purpose in life is taking shape right there. There's always going to be disaster. There's always going to be pain. There's always going to be frustration that only Jesus can fix. And the joy, the wine has run out. We live in a world where joy is scarce. We chase things, and they don't deliver in the end. And people respond in different ways to the disappointment that they experience in life. One way I see sometimes that people respond is is they blame the thing itself. The spouse didn't work out, so I'll get a new one. Or this job's not working out, I'll get a new one. Or or a a new scenery, a new career. Uh, This counselor is no good. This therapist is no good. I I need to get a new one. And it's just a revolving door of new ones. and And they can always disappoint. You can blame the thing. You can blame yourself. 
And people do that. I made these bad choices. I didn't live up to my standards. I'm a loser. I'm worthless. I'm failing at what I accomplish. And that can be, unfortunately, that can be drilled into our lives from a very young age. Um, one of my kids played soccer just as a little kid. Um, they were just little kids playing. And, and there was this just this dad that just, you know, you, you see him sometimes. They're just over the top. And, and, and he's berating his kid. And you like that, like that. And, and, and it's breaking your heart, you know, as you watch it. If you've ever seen something like that, or you can see it in a grocery store when a parent yells at a child in, in an unthinking way or whatever. And, and so they did subs, and the dad says, get over here. And he comes over, and he says something in his ear. And the kid steps back, and he starts crying. And he goes, I'm not a worthless piece of human tissue. And I was like, oh, Jesus, that's what he called his kid. So some people, they blame themselves. I'm failing. I'm a loser. And, and typically, a lot of times what people do is they say, I'm going to try harder. And it just doesn't work. Some people blame the universe. You know, it's just convenient to do this. It's what we do. You just say, I give up. I give up. I quit. And what happens is we kill ourselves just a little bit every time we do that. We become a little less human when we give up on dreams and we give up on ideas and we give up on hopes, we give up on joy. But the real answer, coming at it from an interesting perspective, is to say, blame your separation from God. That's what you should blame. This is the radical change you can't do. Only God can do this. Only God can fix that, that separation. Only God can bring a person to where they will admit that they're a sinner. They'll confess their sins. They'll accept Jesus as their Savior and want, and want to follow Him and experience His joy and, and, and walk with Him. Because Jesus is the answer to the joy shortage. And, and I know, you know, I meet people sometimes and they talk and people have misconceptions. A lot of people think Christianity is against joy. You know, a lot of people think their idea of Christianity is just keep your nose clean, go to church, put a few dollars in the offering plate, hand out a few bulletins, whatever. It's not very fun, but this is the price you pay to not go to hell. They think that's what it is. A lot of people think Christians kind of walk around going, well, I don't think that's very funny at all. And just are these dead people that don't care. Or the great one is, you know, the Simpsons. Maud Flanders. I went to Bible camp so I could learn how to be more judgmental. And that's what people think. I remember when that happened years and years ago in The Simpsons, everybody's like, they're anti-God. I'm like, no, they're not. They're just talking about what they see. I mean, maybe they are. But they're just giving voice to what they see. But think about this. It's Jesus' first sign. It's the first chance to let people see him for who he really is, to see what he really stands for. I mean, in our day and age, it's like, okay, make a big splash. Here you go. This is it. You know, ba-boom. Heal somebody. Boom. Feed thousands. Bam. Right? Raise someone from the dead. Kaboom. Do the big thing. Do the flashy thing. Do the showy thing. No. I mean, isn't this crazy? The first sign Jesus did is to make 
150 gallons of unusually good wine. That was his sign. That was his sign. Why? Because every person there equated wine with joy. And Jesus is telling us, I'm the Lord of the feast. I'm the bringer of joy. Wherever my feet pass, the desert blooms. Wherever I turn my face, the trees laugh and sing for joy. Wherever I go, joy blooms. And it shows us that he's looking ahead to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And the interesting thing is we, the church, followers of Jesus Christ, we're the bride. You know, I was thinking about this wedding, trying to kind of put myself into that day and age and think how they would think. And I, I was thinking about what the bride would be thinking. You know, this, this day, this is my day. This is the most important day of my life. And the most important man in my life is binding himself to me for life. All my hopes, all my dreams, my vision for the future, it's all wrapped up in this day. Because this day is the gateway to all those things I've dreamed of. This is, this is when it begins. On top of that, all the most important people in my life, the people who will be very important later in my life, they're all here. They're all here to rejoice, to celebrate with me. They are all happy for this day. That is just a hint, a hint for us of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, I know some people are listening. You don't have good memory, good memories of wedding. You have been broken and deeply hurt. And I know many of us listening to this have not been brides. A whole lot of us who are listening to this have not been brides, that's for sure. But imagine, just think about this. I was, I was reading this passage, you know, and I, I pray sometimes and I study and I'm looking stuff up and all of a sudden it kind of hit me. What a radical idea Jesus brought by saying, we are the bride of Christ. What a radical idea in a Jewish patriarchal society to say, you're the bride of Christ. It's an interesting thought. Because I think it's, um, I think it's almost kind of like Jesus is saying to those men in his society, the Pharisees and all the others, um, fellas, you're the bride. Stick that under a chauvinistic yarmulke, Right? He's telling them, think about that, because it's a radical idea in that society. But I know for some of us, um, maybe a wedding may not be the happiest thought. I know for some, that you, uh, the marriage, the, the relationship that you've been wanting that has not happened, you're hoping it will happen. You know, we can look around and we can see the, the good marriages around us. And, and you wish you had what they have. And let me tell you, what they have is not enough. Look, I, I, I love my wife. And to my amazement, she continually loves me. But she is not the answer 
She is not enough. And as for her, I know I'm not the answer. I'm not enough. I know I'm not enough because she keeps... T- uh, neither one of us is enough for the other. If I try to make her enough, I put her on a pedestal that she cannot do it. And vice versa. If you put someone on a pedestal, you will ruin them. And if you put getting married on a pedestal, you will ruin it. We need something better, something deeper. It's only found in Jesus. He's the Lord of the festival. He's the master of the feast. And he's the groom. The best wedding reception in the world is just a dim reflection of what is coming for us. And that's why in this passage, Jesus already knows what the answer is that the answer, the answer to everything will only come through his final hour. The one he says, it's not time yet to, to his mother. It's not time yet. It's that final hour when I have that final Passover and then go into the garden and then walk to the cross. He knows that's coming. That's his final hour. He talks about it a number of times. It's very interesting <clears throat> when when we studied it, we studied this a few times. Um, on the Passover table, real quick, this is because I, I think this is pretty cool. There's four cups on the Passover table that they would drink from. Actually, actually, there's five. There's five cups, but they would drink from four. The cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, the cup of protection. But the fifth cup was called the cup of Isaiah. It was also called the cup of God's wrath. It was, it was this idea that they knew that God's wrath had been stored up over years and years of disobedience and sin. And so they looked at that one cup, and that's what that cup was. And so they called it the cup of Isaiah because they said, someday Isaiah will return, and he'll figure out what to do with this cup because that's a loaded cup right there. If you call that the cup of God's wrath, that's more than nuclear bombs, that's for sure. And what's interesting is, After, so they never drank the fifth cup. After the Passover, Jesus goes into the garden and says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Because he realizes, I'm about to drink the cup of God's wrath. I'm about to drink the cup that it has been stored up for millennia and will be in the future poured down into one place and I'm going to drink it. And I'm going to, and so he says, there's got to be another way. Is there another way? And the father says, no. And so Jesus says, then, then it's your will. It's your will. And see, when Jesus is at that wedding feast, he says, it's not my final hour. So we know it's in his mind what's coming. We know that he knows what's coming. That cup, that cup. Jesus has to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we can drink from the cup of joy. And so, throughout Scripture, and we begin to see it here, wine and blood begin, is linked. We see it at the final Passover. Wine and blood is linked. It's the key. And we need to be like Mary and the servants We have to do what Mary did. You know, Mary didn't say to Jesus, because that would be the first thing I'd think. Mary didn't say to Jesus, ho, 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 I'm your mother. You need to chill, a little more respect here. It's just an observation. No, she says, "Do, do whatever he says. And they did whatever he said, probably against their better judgment. We need to be like Mary and like the servants. 
Okay. I'll take it. I don't necessarily understand it. But I'll, I'll live it. I'll obey it. I'll accept it. She was not sure what was going on, but she knew to trust him. She may not have liked what was going on, but she knew to trust him. And sometimes we don't understand what's going on, and we need to trust him. Sometimes we don't like what's going on. Sometimes we don't like what we see. Sometimes we don't, just don't like it. And we need to trust him. Because ultimately, that leads. This passage tells us that that trust led to joy. That's what happened. Mary's faith and the servant's faith, their trust led to joy. Mary didn't say, I'm not going to take that from him and walk away. She told the servants to do what he said. Servants didn't say, this is crazy. This is, I mean, we don't understand. They're looking at these jars that it would be a sin to drink from. And Jesus says, scoop some out and take it to the, give him a sip. And they're just like, this is crazy. And they did it. And when we trust him, he promises the end. It leads to joy. May not, may not be immediately, maybe, but he says, it's the joy's coming. Because I'm the master of joy. I'm the Lord of joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we see a simple story at a wedding. And it becomes a challenge for us on how we live our lives, on what we do with our time and our finances and our friends and our loved ones. All of these things come under your dominion. Help us, Lord, to see that as crazy and paradoxical as it sounds, when we give up to you, we find the joy we've always been looking for. We find the relationship that is the most important relationship that we can build a life upon. And so, Lord, give us the wisdom to follow you. Give us the courage to say no to the things we know we should say no to. We can only get it from you and through your Holy Spirit in our lives to empower us. And so we trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.